All right, turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. Today we're going to finish out uh, John's 16th chapter, and then we're going to take a break from the book of John. Uh, Pastor Dave is going to preach next week while I'm out of town, and then right after I get back, we get back on a Saturday, um, but I thought, you know, after being on a plane on Saturday, you wouldn't want me to preach, so Steve Morgan's going to preach on the 23rd, so that will be great to hear from them. John chapter 16, it's on page 903 if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles. Now, in God's providence, he gave us this passage uh, this week in the calendar because this week our nation had a celebration. Uh, June 6th, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Battle of Normandy. And uh, Dave Stevenson was telling me that our own Tom Martinez, Tom, where, I thought I saw Tom today. Where'd he go? Anyway, there he is. Hey, Tom. Tom was able to visit Normandy, what, two weeks ago or so? So if you have questions, Tom's your man. So that's exciting. But it begs the question, our country over the years has been involved in so many battles. Why did our president and other heads of state gather for this one particular battle? We don't recognize the 75th or 50th anniversaries of every battle we've been in, so there must have been something special about D-Day, about the Battle of Normandy, that would cause this gathering, that would cause this time of recognition of this battle. And one author, I think, summed it up well, who wrote an article about D-Day and about this anniversary, and he called D-Day the most significant victory of the Western Allies in the Second World War. And from my research, that seems to be generally accepted that this was one of the most important battles that our country has ever engaged in. In fact, most agree that essential to victory in World War II was D-Day. And that the war would not have ended when it did and would have continued much longer if D-Day was not the success that it was. The idea is that with D-Day, it allowed peace to be secured when it would not have been possible any other way. And this gives us a pattern that we see throughout history that yes, there are times when negotiations and treaties can bring about peace between countries, but there is a somber truth that sometimes victory must precede peace. That there are times when war is necessary and there is an enemy that must be defeated for peace to be enjoyed. And it is that pattern that brings us to our text today. This pattern of the necessity of victory to bring about peace will help us to understand Jesus' words 
in the 16th chapter of John. And we're going to see this morning that it is through the victory of Jesus, not through the victory of a battle, that we ultimately can have peace. Our big idea, if you're following along in the outline provided in your bulletin, is this. We can have the peace in the midst of hardship because of the victory of Jesus. So let's look at John chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 25. And we're first going to see promised clarity. So let's look at verses 25 to 28. This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. As we've seen, as we've looked at these last chapters of John, including chapter 16, that Jesus is spending a lot of time telling the disciples about what life is going to be like after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we've seen that as the major context of these chapters. And here, when Jesus says, the hour is coming, when he will tell you plainly about the Father, he is talking about a future time when there will be more clarity and understanding. And this is best understood as happening after the death and resurrection and then the ascension of Jesus. Now, part of this we see in the beginning of Acts and the end of the Gospels, where after the resurrection, Jesus spends some time with the disciples explaining what happened. And as we've seen in these last chapters of John, there's the promise of the Holy Spirit who guides the disciples in understanding, especially as we see many of them write the rest of the New Testament. It is Jesus' version of what we say, when you're my age, you'll understand. (laughs) And what we see here, Jesus saying is, when you're able to look back at what has happened, there is going to be a greater level of clarity, especially when Jesus himself is able to say, okay, when I did this, this is what's happening. And again, as we see the Gospels in their historic situation, we see a truth that when the disciples are able to look back at the completed work of Christ, because again, up to now, Jesus is just talking about what's going to happen. And as you see throughout the Gospels, the the idea that Jesus would die, the disciples had no categories for that. But after it happens, and after the resurrections, the resurrection, Jesus is saying, this is why I had to die, and the disciples are able to go, yes, Because we're no longer talking about what will happen, but what has happened. I want to quick point out in verse 26 and 27 that Jesus again brings up the topic of prayer. Because as he has talked about in these chapters, that in essence, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus or through Jesus. But Jesus is quick to say, quick to clarify 
that this is not going to add a barrier between them and the Father. It's sort of like Jesus saying, we're not adding bureaucratic red tape to your prayer life. (laughs) Praying through the mediation of Jesus is to pray directly to the Father. And again, this speaks to what is this new life going to be like? And the normal means of communication with God, with Jesus, for these disciples and for us, is prayer. And we've seen that throughout these last couple chapters of John. But why are they able to pray? Why are they able to experience the love that the Father himself has for them? Look at verse 27. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. We experience the love of God when we love and place our trust in his Son, Jesus Christ. But in verses 29 to 33, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning, not only does Jesus promise clarity, but in the meat of the chapter, in the meat of the passage here, we're going to see that Jesus also promises peace. So let's look at verses 29 to 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. As many passages in the, in the Gospels include, here we have, at the center of this, the disciples' confusion. <laughs> Jesus has talked about a time, and he has been referencing the time after his death and resurrection, and the disciples are like, okay, great, I get it. Right now it's happening. Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Oh, now we get it. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. There there is a a bravado, a pride that the disciples have of thinking they have it all figured out when really they are so far from the mark. We see this in Jesus' remark. There is a soft rebuke here in verse 31. Jesus answered to them, do you now believe? And he gives them this truth in 32, again, telling them what is going to happen. To humble them and to slow them down so that they truly understand what he is doing. Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. Jesus, in the timeline, is just about to be arrested. And he says here, the, it's coming. It's here. It's minutes away. And what are they going to do? Where is their bravado? Where is their, ah, oh, we get it now. 
when the crucifixion happens, the disciples will scatter. Verse 32. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Where is their courage now? And this does, in fact, happen. Jesus alludes to this in, in John 18, verses 8 to 9. And in Mark 14, 50, in Mark's version, we have very explicitly this very short but powerful verse, Mark 14, 50, and they all left him and fled. Thus showing they did not understand what was happening. Their fear was stronger than their trust in Christ. And it's at this time that Jesus says, even though you will all leave me, I'm not alone. Look at the end of verse 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I just want to pause for a second and I want you to think about those words. When all of his followers left him, when all of his friends scattered, Jesus was able to say, I am not alone for the Father is with me. And that is true for us when our friends scatter, when we feel alone and isolated. You are not alone. The Lord, the God of the universe, is with you. But it references a time of great hardship for Jesus. When you read the trial and the crucifixion, you understand the pain and the isolation and the hardship that Jesus endured. He was brought up on fake charges. He was beat physically and emotionally. He faced great tribulation and hardship. But yet he knew that the Father was with him. And then we get to verse 33. Jesus begins verse 33. I have said these things to you. As we've seen before in John's gospel in these last chapters, we see Jesus explaining, why, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you about how you are going to scatter when it gets hard? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Jesus is telling them about how through being in a relationship with him, a relationship of faith and trust and obedience, that in the worst of times they can still have peace. Look at the second part of verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. In this 
fallen and broken world. Not you might have tribulation or hardship. In this world, you will have tribulation. So Jesus is is both promising peace through him, but at the same time, he is affirming that in this world, there will be hardship. How is that possible? How is he able to make that promise when we live in a fallen and broken world and we are fallen and broken people and we live around fallen and broken people? How can he make that promise of peace in the messed up world in that we live? Comes at the end of 33 there. But take heart. Be courageous. Be bold. That's what that means there. You can have peace in the midst of a troubled and hard and difficult and painful world. Why? I have overcome the world. The, world, the word overcome there is a word of victory. So because of the victory of Christ, we can boldly have peace in a troubled world. So how did Jesus have victory? And over what did Jesus have victory? So if you're having victory, there's got to be an enemy. (laughs) I want to use two other passages from the Bible that I think are very important in understanding what it means that Jesus is victorious and how we understand his work in those terms. That's one way we understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In theological terms, we'd use some nice Latin term, Christus Victor. That's a nice, sounds good. So how did Jesus have victory? The first one I want to go to is Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. So Paul begins this passage by speaking of our sins in economic terms, like debt that we owe. And so in this passage in Colossians, Paul is talking about Sin that needs to be forgiven. Sin that we all have. We were dead in our sins and we need to be made alive. Sin is a debt that we cannot pay, that we need to pay. And here's where the victory comes in. So he says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
here sin, death, and the devil to use historical categories. That these authorities, as a result of our sin, that Jesus triumphs over them in the cross. That through his death and resurrection, he disarms them And he puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has victory over sin, death, and the devil. We see this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, Paul writes, familiar passage to many of us, Oh, death... Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory of Jesus is a victory against Satan and his works, It is a victory against death itself in eternal life. And it is a victory against sin in that we are forgiven and our debt is paid and our punishment is paid. So how does that give us peace? How does the victory of Jesus... Give us peace in the midst of a world full of hardship and tribulation. And this is where I want us to end this Sunday. Number one, we can have peace in the face of difficulty and hardship because no enemy can defeat Jesus. In the Bible, death is referred to as the the last enemy, the greatest enemy. If Jesus defeats all of his enemies, he cannot be defeated so that those who belong to him belong to the undefeated king. So we can have peace as we live under the reign of the king who is always victorious. That our God is the sovereign God of the universe. And if Jesus is the undefeated king, there's no one who can defeat our king. He is always on the throne. And he is always God. And so we can have peace in that our king, our God, will not be defeated. Number two, we can have peace because our sin is completely defeated in Jesus. In our Man University class, we studied a little bit the life of Martin Luther. And famous to Martin Luther's coming to Christ was his crippling fear of God as judge because he greatly understood his sin. 
And that's one of the lessons that we learn historically from Martin Luther is the depth of depravity that he understood about himself. And our understanding of sin, the brokenness that we have, the wickedness that is in our hearts can steal our joy. So we begin to think things like, well, God can't forgive that. Or God can't forgive that much. Or God can't forgive that thing I did back then. Those can rob our peace and our joy, but Jesus is victorious. And he has paid the debt of our sin. Sin cannot rear its ugly head again because of the victory of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is victorious, you are forgiven. And thirdly, we can have peace because our eternity is secure through the victory of Jesus. When we look at our current hardships or possible future hardships, it is easy to be discouraged and overwhelmed. But through the victory of Jesus, we know the end of the story. We know that if we belong to Christ, death is even not the end. As we're faced with terminal illnesses, as we're faced with bodies that seem to be running on fumes of our own or our loved ones, it can steal our peace, but in Christ we can have an abiding peace because we know not even death is the end. Through the victory of Jesus, we know we can have eternal life. I've used this analogy before. It's like watching your favorite sports team when you already know the final score. No matter how close it gets in the middle, if you know the end score, it's taking the stress from HD color to those small black and white screens we used to have. And this is one way the Bible talks about it. Listen to Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You are probably going through hard times. Or you will be. And one of the ways we find peace in Jesus is to say... This is not compared with the glory of eternal life. This hardship will not last forever, but heaven will. And that is one of the ways that we find peace in a world full of tribulation. And all of these ways that we find peace are not our performance, are not our ability to be good. And it's not a thing of luck of the draw. 
but it is found through the victory of Jesus on the cross and resurrected. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the victory of Jesus. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan is defeated, our sin is paid for, and death's sting is lost because of eternal life in you. And that these promises are guaranteed because they have been secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is not based on how much we do or what we have, but it is based on what Jesus has completed in the death and resurrection. God, that we would find peace today. That through Christ, we would experience a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.